Um, uh, raising three daughters, as I did, um, there were many times where, uh, you know, they would be in the midst of um, dealing with some, you know, what seemed to be overwhelming challenge in their life. And, uh, you know, as a, a father, I understood that they uh, they had it pretty good, you know, growing up. And uh, I would listen to those complaints and they say something, you know, really compassionate to them like, wow, that's a really tough first world problem that you have, you know. And uh, they learned to appreciate that at times. And I think that as the American church, uh, we do that a bit, that as we look around at the chaos that is occurring around us, uh, we tend to scream and wail and have a fit and say things like, it's the end of the world. And, uh, you know, it is. But at the same time, we've had it so good for so long that, uh, you know, this this is a very light affliction that we're dealing with compared to what the rest of the world has been enduring for so long. Christianity has been being tortured to death, literally, around the world. And uh, we're getting this extremely mild taste of that right now with some very mild persecution and we act like it's the end of the world. You know, Iran executed a soccer player yesterday for simply protesting. Simply protesting. Just raising his voice to speak out against their country. They hung him. You know, just imagine, imagine not having the freedom to just speak. You raise your voice against the government and just say, that's wrong. And they put your neck in a noose. We have it very well right here. I want to balance that and say, I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay uh, what's going on in the world around us. I'm not. Pay attention. Be wise. Know the word. But at the same time, we still have so much freedom. We still have so much privilege here. With that, protect it. Protect it. Vote. Get into the voting booth and vote for righteousness. You know, you, you, you look at the world around us. You know, I ruffle feathers. Forgive me. Come talk to me if this rattles your cage. If you're voting for a Democrat, I don't know how you're doing that as a Christian. I don't know how you're doing that as a Christian. Okay? If, if you are, okay, and you're hearing those, omen, those, those amens and that kind of bothers you, come talk to me. Okay, that, that is an organization of murder, killing our children. It's an organization of ungodly corruption. You say the Republicans, absolutely, that's right. Very corrupt, and they need to repent. But as an organization, they haven't set out as their mandate things that are ungodly and murderous and anti-Christ and anti-biblical, okay? So when I tell you, you know, this whole thing, you know, separation of church and state, you understand there's no such thing? No, I'm, I'm talking like constitutionally, legally, there's no such thing, right? Imagine this. I, I use weird illustrations. We get in a physical fight, you and I. We're going toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and I suddenly tell you, hey, 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 
It's against the law for you to use your right hand. You can't punch me in the face with your right hand. And you stop punching me in the face with your right hand, and then I wail on you with both hands. And then you find out later it wasn't against the law. You could have used both hands. You're being told there's a separation between church and state legally. There is none. I can stand right here in this pulpit and endorse any candidate I want to and tell you who to vote for even. It's not against the law. They, they want us to think that it is so that we don't vote for righteousness. You need to vote. You need to vote as a Christian, and you need to vote for that which supports righteousness, which supports Christianity, which supports biblical worldview. Otherwise, we will end up in the place where it'll be far more than first world problems. We, we will be experiencing persecution like you've never seen before, right, right here in our towns, in our culture. You know, <clears throat> Calvary Chapel, Bangor, taking Governor Mills to court. The appeal just occurred this past week in the Supreme Court of Appeals, Boston, Massachusetts, on their Facebook page. I included uh, the link. You can listen to the audio. The arguments go back and forth. You get to right around the 30-minute mark, and our lawyer makes the point that if you had a church gathering here in the state of Maine with hundreds of people in the room, teaching them how to receive unemployment benefits. That would be a legal gathering under this governor's mandate. At noon, if you switched gears and had a worship team come up and started leading the people and singing songs and worshiping Jesus Christ, it's suddenly against the law. That's, that's the mandate our government has put out here in this state of Maine. That was argued to the Supreme Court of Appeals, First Circuit, Boston, Massachusetts, this week on our behalf. And you heard the judges' minds shift when they were like, oh, wait a second, when it was put forward that way. You can have a meeting where it is teaching people about some civic Thing, but the minute it becomes worship against the law, it is being persecuted and they're eroding your freedoms right now. First world problem, small issue. Let it go. It won't be a small issue. Very short period of time. This is your sermonette before the sermon. Okay. <clears throat> so um, second Timothy chapter three, let's take a quick look there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, Brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And I'll pause right there. What is the power of God? It is the power to deliver us from sin, brothers and sisters. And the church today has become a social club where it's no longer being confrontational about sin. It's no longer encouraging people to depart from sin. It's no, lab no longer labeling sin as sin. It's no longer telling people that they have the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ to be delivered from sin. Having a form of godliness is, 
they deny the power thereof. The power of Christ is to deliver us from sin. Right? Behold the Lamb of God, John said, who takes away the sins of the world. That isn't, that isn't just that he washes away the sins that you've committed. It's that he takes the power of sin out of your life. This is what Christ does. Having a form of godliness. Oh, the church has forms of godliness. But the church is also running neck and neck with the world statistically in its sin. We, we have identical rates of sin in the church as we do in the unsaved world. Same divorce rate. Same abortion rate. right? Same drug addiction, alcoholism, gambling. Every single vice and issue that besets the world, the church has it. That should not be the case. We should have the light of Christ in our lives, radiating out of our midst into a sick and dying world, inviting them into a life that is freed from these things, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jamres resisted Moses, the magicians who came and performed the same types of miracles that Moses did, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. It will become obvious who these charlatans are over time, who these fakes are within the church. We're certainly seeing them exposed, aren't we? One after another. Don't be shocked when you see the next prominent Christian leader emerge onto the scene as being exposed for their sinfulness. You didn't notice their flamboyant lifestyle before they got busted. You didn't see their private jet. You didn't see their silk suits. You didn't see their wealthy corruption? You think I'm reading into it? These are the things that the half-brother of Jesus Christ, James, recorded in his epistle. Saying, watch out for the rich. Watch out for those who are wealthy. Do not follow them. They're the ones who corrupt Christianity. They're the ones who drag you into court. They're the ones who persecute you. Jesus Christ spoke against wealth constantly. Constantly confronted those who were wealthy, who came and said, I want to follow you. And he said, well, we're going to be camping out. So brace yourself. And that rich young ruler went away crying. Just for the thoughts that he was going to have to suffer physically and live an impoverished life in order to follow Jesus Christ. You want to be careful, you guys, about wealth, possessions, materialism, that is so prominent in Christianity. You have wealth, you have money, you have materialism, great. God's blessed you. That's, that's wonderful. Use it for his kingdom. And I mean his kingdom, not this church. Right, You deal with that between you and the Lord. Use it for his kingdom, not to enrich yourself. Those things corrupt our hearts and mind. These men will be made obvious. Look at verse 10. 
We're still in the sermonette. You with me here? We'll get to numbers in a minute. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, speaking to Timothy, uh, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Everyone who wants to live godly is going to suffer persecution. The Lord makes it very clear that if the world loves you as a believer, you probably got a problem. If you get along easily with the world, if you get along with those that are the corrupt and the ungodly, there's probably a problem in your life. You need to examine your heart and see what's going on there. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And here it is. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for, number one, doctrine. Number two, reproof. A lot of people don't want to be reproved. For correction. A lot of people don't want to be corrected. For instruction in righteousness. A lot of people don't want to be instructed. That the manner, or excuse me, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's the word of God that's going to affect these changes and bring about what needs to happen in our lives. You want to pay very close attention to the word of God in your personal life and make sure that it's continuously flowing into your life. Because the world is going to get more and more and more and more corrupt every passing day. And if you are going to stand in the integrity of Jesus Christ in this world, you're going to have to have that word deeply embedded in yourself. If you do not have that, then you're going to be without direction. You're going to be without compass, unable to navigate through these circumstances. It's getting mildly tricky right now, mildly. You wait until it's incredibly complex. You know, I'm looking at the most precious little faces in my life yesterday thinking about the world that they're going to have to grow up in and how complex it's going to be. I pray to God that we would be men and women of integrity that are thoroughly equipped for every good work, who lead them in the soundness of God's word. Amen. Numbers chapter 12. That's where we left off. There is a wonderful thing that is happening in the nation of Israel at this point. And unfortunately, whenever the Lord is doing great things in the body of believers, bad things follow. So you have the establishment of the temple and worship, which at this point, I should have said tabernacle because they don't have a temple yet made of stone and wood. They have a tent that they assemble and disassemble and move to follow the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And worship being so firmly established by the Lord, the next thing we see 
is that the people are complaining. They're listening in verse 11 or chapter 11 to the complaints of the mixed multitude. And we talked specifically about the fact that God loves all of the people from all of the countries, the mixed multitude that came with the nation of Israel, he invited, wanted them there. It isn't the mixture of race that's ever a problem with the Lord, which also plays into chapter 12 and neatly into our current events from news and headlines today. The issue is the mixed belief systems, the religions that corrupt the one true religion of worshiping the one true and living God. So the complaints arise in chapter 11, and you may recall that the Lord brings them the meat that they had been whining and complaining for as the quail come into the camp. And then there's also the plague that rises amongst them. And you turn the page and come to Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, and it says, Then Miriam and Aaron, now this is the older siblings of Moses. And older siblings are a pain in the butt, are they not? All the younger siblings in the all the older siblings in the room are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying. Am I am I correct in that? Okay. My youngest daughter is shaking her. I'm the youngest, so just I'm being stupid. The issue is Miriam and Aaron. Interestingly enough, if you look at the backstory here a little bit, Miriam preserved Moses' life, didn't she? Right? If it were not for Miriam, we would have no Moses. If it were not for Miriam, we would have no ministry of Moses. Many aspects to Moses are contingent upon Miriam. But she misplaces that responsibility right here. She looks at it through the incorrect lens. Because who is in control? God is in control. And if there were no Miriam, there would still be a Moses, wouldn't there? Right? Because that was God's intention. As we've read through the account of Joseph, right? His older brothers that did such evil to him. Joseph doesn't dismiss that and say, Ah, you guys were fine. You were just doing the will of the Lord. No, he says... What you intended for evil, God meant for good. You can't override God's plans. He very carefully points out that what they were doing was wicked. Numbers chapter 12. All the older siblings, like, I was just kidding. Just get over it. I was just, it was just a joke. It failed. So, you know, you can, you can forgive me. All it takes is God's grace for you to listen to the rest of the sermon, okay? <clears throat> then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now, look, it's so interesting to me to read that and then watch the commentators try to make this Ethiopian woman something other than a very dark-skinned Ethiopian woman. They, they read that and immediately they're like, well, probably what occurred was that she was, you know, originally from and then went to Ethiopia and then came. No, she's a very dark skinned black Ethiopian woman. Moses' wife. Get it? God's not a racist. M Moses is not a racist. Found this woman to be beautiful and married her. Simple as that. Just like that. You know, all of the Aryan nation freak out. You know, oh, that can't mean what that means. No, that's exactly what it means. Moses was married to a black woman. It's as simple as that. Oh, I thought God said not to have mixed races. No, he said not to have mixed religions. That you weren't supposed to mix your religions. Because when the people's hearts depart from the Lord, then the curses that fall upon those ungodly nations come upon his people, and he wants to avoid that. So anyone from any race 
is actually according to the scripture, Acts chapter 17, verse 26, speaking of God, he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. There's only one race. There is only one race, according to the scripture. There are not many different races. We are all the human race, all descended from common ancestry. So, married to an Ethiopian woman. So apparently, Miriam and Aaron have something you know going on in their hearts about the fact that Moses is married to an Ethiopian, and here it comes. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now, listen, that's a really strange approach to the whole thing. Their complaint Moses or against Moses, Miriam in particular, but Miriam and Aaron, their complaint is, is Moses the only one that hears from God? Okay, <clears throat> what's that got to do with an Ethiopian wife? Zero, right? Absolutely zero. And yet, it's mixed in here somehow. Why? Because the Lord is showing us what's really going on in their heart. It doesn't have anything to do with whether Moses is the only person that hears from the Lord or not. Do we not remember Turn back just one page, and you're in chapter 11, and there the Lord pours his spirit out upon 70 men. And, right, Joshua raises the concern about there's two guys that weren't in the tent. They're out amongst the people, and they're prophesying, and don't you want me to go make them stop? And Moses says, no. Anybody that's filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying on behalf of the Lord is a good thing. Let them be filled with the Spirit let them speak on behalf of the Lord. <clears throat> Moses knows very well he's not the only one who hears from the Lord, is the point. Moses doesn't have a monopoly on the conversation with God. He wants, he, he, he makes the statement at the end of chapter 11 that he wants all of the nation of Israel to be filled with the Spirit and hear from the Lord directly. Now, here comes Miriam and Aaron, and they're acting like uh, that Moses guy. He acts like he's the only one that hears from the Lord. Oh, if they just sat down with Moses and had a conversation. If they would just talk to the man about what his real attitude is, right? They're seeing something in his conduct that they interpret as Moses thinks he's the only one who hears from the Lord. Guess what? <clears throat> Moses is the only one who always hears from the Lord. The scripture itself tells us that the 70 others that this is the only occasion in chapter 11 where they experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and hearing from the Lord that way. Moses experiences it that way all the time, unbroken. There's a continuous flow of conversation and communication between God and Moses that doesn't occur for anyone else in the nation of Israel. And what's going on is Miriam in particular, but Miriam and Aaron have now heard from the Lord in the same way that Moses does all the time. And now they're acting like, oh, we hear from God all the time. No, you've had an experience with the Lord that is similar to what Moses is experiencing all the time. And now you've gotten too big for your britches and you think, that you're equal to Moses because they've had this one-time experience. Oh, that makes us equal with Moses. No, it doesn't. Not in this case, right? Why? Because God has chosen one leader. God has chosen one leader, and his name is Moses. God did not walk around rubber stamping a whole bunch of people in the nation of Israel. 
he set his seal upon Moses. And then directly under Moses, he set his seal upon Aaron. So that the people have clearly defined leadership in their midst. The one who wants to create this confusion is the enemy of our soul, Lucifer himself. Satan wants to take the gifting of these people and sideline the work of God. Stumble everybody in the process. So, here comes the answer. Now, the man of Moses was very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. Now, I need to clarify something. Moses wrote that. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, if, if, if I hand you my business card and it says, you know, Will Cass, a man who is very humble more than all who are on the face of the earth. Here's Hi, I'm Will Cass, and here's my business card. <clears throat> you might walk away and spend some time thinking about, who is this guy? Who, who does he think he is? You might leave here and this afternoon go, well, what in the world is up with that? Well, here's the deal, guys. We just, in our pre-sermon sermon, heard that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is the Holy Spirit that said that through Moses about Moses. You know what? You know why I accept that? Because Moses shortly in just a matter of chapters is going to record his own failures unflinchingly. He's going to tell us about his own disobedience to God and the punishment that comes from God upon his own head because he didn't do what the Lord told him to do. His humility is when he has a success, he'll tell you of his success. When he has a failure, he'll tell you of his failure. He's honest. He's true. He's not a hypocrite. He'll tell you the way it is. He's humble. And in this circumstance, he's going to demonstrate that. Verse 4, suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. I wonder if Miriam and Aaron are actually thinking at this point, see, I told you we hear from God. <laughs> right? We hear from God too. And then the voice says, the three of you guys come out here. See, I heard that. <laughs> well, let's go to the showdown then. Let's see what God has to say here. So they came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. They both went forward. There's got to be some fear and intrepidation at that moment. Because when you've done something wrong, you know in your heart you've done something wrong. And then when you're being isolated and pulled aside, right? You kind of know when you're being called into the principal's office. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, Moses, you just stay there for a minute. Miriam, Aaron, I'd like to have a moment alone with you if I could, please. Bring them aside to have the conversation. I'm not just doing that for storytelling illustration, Etch that on your own heart. I have to etch it on my own heart. Because we do that. I get arrogant. I flap my gums. You say things you shouldn't. And then you're reading through the scripture. And the finger seems to just point right at your nose. And if you brush it off, ah, uh, then you're like what we read in 2 Timothy this morning. You despise instruction. You gotta let you gotta let the accusation land on your own heart. You gotta let the correction, the reproof, right? 
Reproof, right? Any of us that have written papers know what it is to proof a paper. Have you had to reproof a paper and reproof and reproof and reproof, right? Is this the story of your life? <laughs> it is mine. Not yours? Good. That's wonderful. Pray for me, you know? The reproofing. And it's the Word of God that reproofs us, that reviews us, circles, crosses out, you know, underlines, all in red pen. You know what I'm saying? Right? The red letters, they say a lot to us sometimes. They speak volumes to us. Christ has called these aside, and the correction is coming. The Lord came to the door of the pillar. Tabernacle called Aaron and Miriam. They both went forward. Then he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Yeah. It's interesting the way the Lord starts out, right? Because Miriam and Aaron have already printed their own business cards. You know, and it says prophet, prophetess, next to their name. In their own mind, they've already said, you know, who is this Moses guy? We're prophets too. And now the Lord is saying, you know, if there's a prophet, in other words, since you're not, you know, if there is one amongst you, basically what he's saying is that's not your credentials. Those are my credentials, and I lend them to people. You don't get to say you're the prophet. I'll let everyone know that you are. You don't get to go around and assign that to yourself. Listen, <clears throat> people get offended when I name names, when I speak specifics, but the church needs to know these things, okay? There's a group. Currently, uh, one of the titles of the organization that they go by is the International House of Prayer, okay? And yes, the acronym is IHOP, okay? That's, that's straight on their church, IHOP, okay? <clears throat> the International House of Prayer is a den of false teachers. And if you are infatuated with them, I, I mean it sincerely when I say I apologize, but that's the truth, okay? Bethel Music, that's all part of that whole thing. Uh, Hillsong is attached to them. Uh, there are half a dozen. The most popular music production organizations in Christianity right now that's, that's who they are. Okay? Their doctrine is atrocious. Just absolutely unbiblical. Absolutely ungodly. Where they started in the 80s was a group that they didn't name themselves this. They became known as the Kansas City Prophets. Okay? They're all false teachers. Proven to be false teachers. Making great boastful claims and prophecies that fell apart. Turned into garbage. There was a young woman here years ago <clears throat> had a profound, turned out to be thyroid issue. And uh, any of you ladies, any people, but any of you ladies especially that have been through that know how severe it is. What she needed was good, balanced medical treatment. And that's eventually what she got. But in the interim, IHOP got a hold of her, and found out she was a trust fund kid and had a giant, massive, fat bank account. So they wanted her to come out there quick as they could, and they got her to go out there, and they soaked her for tens of thousands of dollars with the promise that they were going to heal her. 
you know, the healing, evangelistic, miraculous, prophetic ministry of, you know, reverend, most holy, so-and-so. And she went and she spent and she came home not only unhealed, but her faith was shaken to the core because she had believed false teachers. And that destruction of her faith led to terrible sin in her life and stumbling and all kinds of horrendous problems. She left this fellowship, wandered through a long period of up and down, eventually got with a doctor who helped her out. She needed medical treatment. She got that medical treatment. And she's doing so much better today physically. Spiritually, she's a disaster. She's a disaster. My heart breaks over that situation. Just because somebody slaps the title on themselves, evangelist, healer, prophet, that doesn't mean a blessed thing. Right? I don't care who they are. The apostolic church of whatnot. Are you really the apostolic church? You're literally telling me that they're apostles equal to James, John, Peter in your midst. That's what they insist. We're the fivefold ministry. We got apostles and prophets and evangelists amongst us, just like in the Bible. So their names are going to be engraved on the foundation stones of heaven? No, they're not. No, they're not. We have a list of who those are, right? There are 24 names. We know specifically the number. There aren't a countless list of names that are engraved. We know what the scripture tells us. How do we? Because we have the word of God, right? This is what Peter is saying when he says, I saw, I'm paraphrasing, I saw Jesus Christ transfigured. I saw his glory with my own eyes, but I have the more sure word of prophecy. The word of God, Peter is saying, is more sure than whatever supernatural experience I may have had even on a mountain where I saw Jesus appear like lightning and saw prophets standing with him. The word of God is more sure than that experience. The church would be wise to understand that. That where your faith needs to be founded and your belief system needs to be founded is in the word of God. People have all kinds of experiences. You get in the wrong group of, I'll put the quote brackets around Christians, and you could have some pretty strange experiences. They may be tapped into things that don't have anything to do with the Word of God at all. It's an unfortunate experience. God is saying to Miriam and or Miriam, Miriam and Aaron right here, you know, when there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Who do you think you are? Is literally what the Lord is saying. <clears throat> Listen, Lord, the Lord just said, essentially, I've given you visions, Miriam. I've spoken to you, Aaron. Those things come from me. But Moses is beyond that. Moses is a man who has an unbroken communication with me that none of you prophets have. And why were you not afraid? Why didn't you have a fearful respect of me when you began to speak against him? You're speaking against my leadership is what the Lord is saying. 
In the previous chapter, when the people complained about the food, the Lord said their complaining is tantamount to despising me. They didn't think of it that way. They just wanted meat, right? They've been eating manna for all this time, years, and they get to the place where they want savory food again, right? They want leeks and onions and garlic. They want seasoning and they want meat. They don't want manna anymore. And God says that complaining about the food was equal to despising God. If complaining about the food is equal to despising God, <clears throat> what is this equal to right here? when they're complaining against the man who delivered them from their bondage of sin into the faith. They were slaves in Egypt, and this man led them out through the Red Sea and into this freedom, and now they're complaining against him. They're setting themselves up equal to him. God is not taking this lightly. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned towards Miriam, and when there she was, a leper, so Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord! Please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Why is Moses claiming this? Right? <clears throat> Forgive me, I'm not Moses. But if you run your mouth at God and we hear from God and then God strikes you with lightning or leprosy, my sinful, fleshly approach is probably just going to do what I can to get away from you. Moses identifies with Miriam. He immediately attaches himself to her sin. Do you see why it's appropriate that Moses records at the beginning of this chapter, now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Because he immediately identifies with his sister's sin. I, I have learned to mechanically do this as a Christian and as a pastor. When I'm talking to people about their sin, to automatically put myself in their shoes and make myself identify with where they're at. But I got to tell you, very often, as I listen to people's confessions, and I listen to, not that I hold confession or anything, but you know, when we're listening to people share the things they're struggling with, very often it's so grotesque that you want to just run away from it. You want to just exclaim like, oh my word, I can't believe what kind of human being you are. <laughs> when realistically, if I'll just take a moment, I can easily identify with who they are, right? Because I've got my own sin that's probably worse than theirs. If I'll just think about it for a moment. We tend to react so, so poorly. Moses immediately identifies. Why? Because he's Christ-like. He's filled with the Spirit. He's constantly in the presence of the Lord. Moses' reaction is not mechanical. Moses' reaction is sincere. Moses' reaction is natural to him. He immediately identifies with, oh, I know what that's like. No? Remember when Moses murdered a man? Right? Why did Moses murder a man? 
because of his pride and his arrogance. Miriam hasn't taken up any weapon and killed anybody. Moses recognizes, I'm worse than even my own sister. Who's the deliverer of Israel? Uh, who is it that has brought these people out of bondage? It's been God, hasn't it? God is the one who has delivered the nation of Israel, not Moses. When Moses killed the Egyptian slave master, he thought himself the deliverer. Miriam currently thinks herself equal to the leader of Israel, Moses. Moses is saying, I know what that's like. I know what that's like to be, you know, too big for your britches. To look at someone's role who's in authority over you and think, I could do that. I could do that job. I could do that job better than them. Moses knows what this attitude is like. He knows the root of this attitude. And now he's looking at Miriam, and she's got a death sentence upon her. A death sentence upon her. I've talked to some of you about your sinful past, and you're grateful for the statute of limitations. As the years have passed, and you've been able to say, that's far enough behind me now to where I don't have to wake up in a cold sweat anymore. Christ has delivered you from your own conduct, your own past, your own sinfulness. Right? But there was a time where the threat hung over your head, the worry consumed you. Moses is a man who committed murder and could have been put to death for it. And he's been delivered by the Lord from that sentence, and now he's looking at his sister who just had a death sentence pronounced upon her. And that fear grips his heart. And he goes to prayer on her behalf and for the nation because he understands, he understands this is the complaint of, of all the people, Miriam's just the one who's bold enough to voice it. The entirety of this nation has been mumbling and grumbling and complaining about Moses. And Miriam, Miriam has the strength and determination to stand up and say something. She's just voicing what everybody else is thinking. And now there's death upon her. White as snow, that's extremely advanced. Leprosy, when a person gets to the point, to this day in the leper colonies, where all of their skin is white the way this is being described, they say you can smell them for more than 200 feet. From the kitchen door in the back out here to the front of this building is just barely a hundred feet. The stench of rotting flesh. She's suddenly white as snow. Moses is overpowered with the presence of death upon his sister's life. And he just collapses into the mercy of God. Oh, my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when she comes out of her mother's womb. That idea of that soft, pruned, wrinkled, gelatin skin of a newborn child. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, please, Heal her, oh God, I pray. Mercy, contentment. This is a confirmation of what the Lord said to Miriam in verses 6 through 8. 
particularly verse 8. I speak with him, meaning Moses, face to his face, even plainly, not in dark sayings. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? <clears throat> the, the, the greater message to Miriam is happening right now from Moses' mouth. Understand that. The greater message to Miriam and to us this morning is, look at what Moses is doing right now, praying for you. That's the heart of God right there. Mercy, grace, intervening, interceding. That's the heart of God right there. Miriam thinks Moses is arrogant. Miriam thinks Moses is full of himself. When, when Moses says, this is the way it's going to be, and everybody else has got another opinion that it should go a different direction, and Moses just holds the line and says, no, this is the way it's going to be, everybody goes, Moses is so arrogant. Why? Because Moses spends time in the presence of the Lord and hears directly from the Lord, and his answer is unwavering because he knows the heart of God. Miriam doesn't view it that way. Miriam just used it as, nobody gets a vote around here. It's Moses' way or the highway. No. No, it's God's way. How do I know? Well, the pillar of cloud or fire lifts up, and it moves, and I follow it. Moses' life is pretty simple. He keeps his face fixed upon the Lord and what the Lord says and what the Lord does and what the Lord commands. That's what Moses does. The reason there is division and confusion is because no one else concentrates on the Lord the way Moses does. Moses is singularly focused upon the Lord with his whole life. And that's why he's capable of leading these people. And that's where the division comes from is because the rest of the people are not. It's not that they're especially sinful. It's that they've got families. It's that they've got jobs. It's that they've got duties. And they're concentrating on all the things that the Lord has given them. But then when Moses says to do something, they're disgruntled. They're not following the leadership that the Lord has put in their life. This man is focused on his relationship with the Lord and leading these people. This is what he's doing with his whole person. The division comes because they aren't focused on the Lord the way that Moses is. Now you hear it. As I said, he's crying out. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days and afterward she may be received again. In that is the promise that the Lord is going to heal her. The backstory is that if someone spit upon you, it defiled you ceremonially for seven days, particularly if a young woman's father spit upon her. We're not talking about him just being too boisterous and accident. Like literally, she's done something that he says you need corrective discipline for. The entire world needs to know you're living in spin in sin. And he would spit upon her publicly in such a way that everyone would gasp in shock, and she would be separated spiritually from the camp for seven days in order that she would go seek the Lord and get right with the Lord in order to be restored spiritually back to fellowship with all of them and the Lord. Moses is saying, look, if a father recognized the sinfulness of a daughter and simply spit upon her to bring her to where she needs to be spiritually She'd have seven days. I just struck this woman with a death sentence of leprosy. She needs to be separated from the camp for a period of time in order to repent. 
She needs to come to herself. Very often, repentance comes too cheaply in the church. People fall into sin and everybody pats them on the back and says, Welcome back and restores them quickly. And often what happens is that person just repeats the cycle over and over again. Failing and falling and restoring and failing and falling and restoring and failing and falling and restoring. And what they learn in the process is hypocrisy. This woman needs to spend the time. Imagine, imagine what it's like to sit for seven days where your skin is rotting off your body. That's going to make you really think about the things that you said about Moses, isn't it? It's going to make you really think about the sinfulness of your conduct. She has to be out of the camp. So Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days. And the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again. In that there's a gracious thing that the camp waited for them. But you know what's more gracious? Why didn't they travel? Because the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire did not lift off the temple and move. So who's really waiting for Miriam? The Lord's waiting for Miriam. Right? Because you can guarantee that if that pillar of cloud lifts or that pillar of fire lifts and moves, the nation of Israel is going to follow that pillar of fire and that pillar of cloud. What's going on is God is saying, we're all going to stay right here until my daughter is restored. We're all going to sit right here until my daughter is restored to what? To fellowship with me. God is willing to wait with a million people, right? Well, probably closer to eight million people who are prone to complaining, right? Any of you parents that have, you know, taken those trips with the kids in the car know, right? <clears throat> Imagine a whole week, a whole week with them in the car, complaining. But there's a very somber thing going on, and everyone is aware of it, right? Somebody just got spanked in the back of the car. Dad has said, I will pull this car over. And then he pulled the car over. And Miriam got spanked. And now everybody's just sitting real somber, waiting for the week to pass in order for Miriam to be restored. Because God wants to be in fellowship with Miriam. Wants to be in fellowship with his daughter. And afterward, the people moved from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Right? Hazaroth, you may remember, simply means yard. Right? And I pointed out that it probably means something like doyad. You know? It does literally mean an, an enclosed area of protection. Okay? Interesting that Miriam raises her complaint and they have to stay in the enclosed place of protection. Hazaroth. Perrin is taken from a word which means to make known in a gleaming way, an embellished way. Okay, Perrin doesn't necessarily mean that, but its root word sort of gives us that understanding, right? We might say the answer was obvious. You read through this, and sure, there's lots of illustrative backstory, but you get to the conclusion of the matter, and the answer is quite obvious, isn't it? The love of God. The grace of God. You can look at this and think, wow, how incredibly harsh. You get just barely under the surface, and what do you see? God's love. 
God's grace. Look, he needs this out in the open, doesn't he, before they move on. <clears throat> he needs Miriam and Aaron's heart exposed before they move on. They can't go on and develop worship and the nation and all that's going to transpire without this coming to the surface. God is very gracious to us, you guys. And when we're being disciplined, it doesn't feel nice. But what God wants to show and prove and accomplish in our lives is always so much better. Let the Lord have his work. Let the Lord perform his duties. And in the process, we all get to benefit. Make sense? Well, let's stand and we'll pray. We'll pick up with chapter 13 next week. Father, we thank you very much for your love and your grace in our lives. We ask that you would minister to us. Help us to follow you. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your heart. Fill us with your understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.